I like the earlies. I like, I the like early Bumblebee. I, I love I love Bumblebee. Let's bring back Haley Steinfeld. Maybe she's busy with Hawkeye season two. We don't know. Um, getting so high. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Hello, everyone, and welcome to Plot Devices, episode 22. We're feeling like Taylor Swift today, possibly. I don't know how she's feeling. Neither of us know her. Well, wouldn't that be something if we put her on that show? That'd be one heck of a guest spot. My name is Brandon King. I am one of your hosts for today. It's going to be one heck of a show, and I have one heck of a co-host to join me for today. Noah Guzman is here. Noah, how are you doing today? I don't know about you, Brandon, but I'm feeling 22. And it's... Wow, that's shocking. Two years older than 22, but we don't count that. Um, I... I'm really excited to be here today. You know, you think we're covering exciting stuff today. Just wait till the next episode. And then the next episode, it's just going to have a snowball effect. And eventually, I hope we don't crash. I hope it just becomes a wild party. Yeah, just wait until we get into mid-April. Anyways, uh, this is what happens, guys, when we record this show, usually on a Sunday fourth wall break, which is usually really uh, on a late Saturday, early Sunday, I should say, for us, which is convenient for most times, except when, you know, the biggest television event of the year happens, i.e. the Super Bowl. And while neither Noah or myself are necessarily football aficionados, uh, in like, the least, no, not particularly. Um, they play ball, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> here are just uh, not all the commercials, but all the main movie and TV shows we wanted to bring up. Uh, we got our first look at Lord of the Rings: The Rings of Power, the new Amazon series that is coming later this year. Hopefully, we'll get to talk about that and maybe even talk about the films at some point. We had a new TV spot for Moon Knight, which is coming next month in March. Actually, before the Super Bowl, uh, we had the full trailer for Jurassic World Dominion. Jeff Goldblum, uh, Sam Neill, Laura Dern, all of them are back in, you know, Dinosaur Madness. Uh, nope. The full trailer for Jordan Peele's next movie uh, with uh, Kiki Palmer, Stephen Young, Daniel Kaluuya back from Get Out. So it looks really great. We're going to get into it. Ambulance, Michael Bay's new project with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Yaya Abdul-Mateen II had a new spot. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 had a big game spot that I actually thought was really charming. Uh, Netflix had a very weird uh, kind of promotion for a lot of their films, but then turned into a new trailer for Ryan Reynolds and Mark Ruffalo's The Atom Project. We're going to be talking about that in a couple weeks, but the trailer for that looks very fun. And last but not least, the big story of the day, the last couple weeks, I'm sure you all have heard endless speculation about it. The new full-length trailer for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness coming in May, I believe, still is the release date, uh, with a couple of great Easter eggs, some trippy visuals, and one... Very interesting voice. Who is it? We're going to get into it. But first off, uh, no, I want to go over to you first. Just first of all, were you watching the Super Bowl and what were your reactions to, you know, some of the spots, things like that? And then, of course, which of these trailers really stood out to you? I was working uh, during the Super Bowl. I uh, was in my last position as a server and uh, was waiting on a couple of tables who came in to enjoy some steaks while they watched, uh, you know, those two teams, those two teams play ball. Uh, but of course, what I was expecting or what I was most excited for was watching that YouTube clip of all of these big movie spots. I mean, I remember watching the Super Bowl a couple of years back where we got announcements for all of those Disney Plus Marvel series. It was a compilation of WandaVision, Loki, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And I was writing that for months until we got the WandaVision release. And so uh, coming to this slate of trailers, um, you know, big surprises for me were, you know, I had already seen uh, that Nope trailer. Um, I'm, I'm unsure. It must have premiered during the Super Bowl, but I think a friend, uh, you know, Sam had sent me the trailer because she knew I was a big Jordan Peele fan. So I checked that out uh, beforehand. Big surprises for me were was Ambulance. I didn't realize how, you know, 
how intrigued by the by the content I was going to be until that trailer came out. I know it's going to be Michael Bay. I know we've got explosions here and there. Um, but with the clips that they show in that trailer, it's enough to get me going. Like now I'm kind of now I'm kind of riding that train. Um, that DC trailer, you know, buffs me up as a DC fan. Yeah, uh, with getting, all the movies. Yeah, with all of them. We got Black Adam, Aquaman 2, The Lost Kingdom. Best look yet at the Flash suit. That's right. We're getting exciting new angles to these heroes that we haven't seen before in their solo trailers. I think only like Shazam has had uh, their solo trailer. Um, like, well, even then, I don't even know if it's full length. But anyways, you know, those were the big, those are the big wins for me. We're seeing Ambulance and being excited now to go watch that movie. And then also hyping myself up as a DC fan because of that spot that they had. It was so well edited and so well done. No, that was great. Like seeing the more of Black Adam, we saw uh, for our first look at Pierce Brosnan as Dr. Fate, who looks amazing. Uh, th- I think that Black Adam movie is going to be a big surprise to a lot of people, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Adam Project, I enjoy seeing more of that. That looks like a really intriguing left turn from what Sean Levy and Ryan Reynolds did with a uh, free guy, which we actually talked about in one of our first episodes. Uh, so excited for that. Lord of the Rings. Uh, the effects don't look totally done. But I'm going to let it pass because we have like six or seven months to let them finish. Uh, it looks great. I don't know about you. I think it looks really cool. I like the approach of, you know, 2000 years early with Galadriel and young Gandalf and all that. Uh, or not young Gandalf, uh, Lee Pace's character, Elrond. I will actually agree with you. That ambulance spot actually was kind of fun. Uh, I liked the trailer when it came out. I thought it looked neat. Again, it's Michael Bay, so I have an itch at the back of my neck. But at the same time, I thought, you know what? This is a well-cut trailer. Like, if you're someone who didn't know about this movie just watching it, yeah, it looks neat. Um, and then, of course, Nope, which I'm not a horror guy, but I did watch the full thing online, and it's creepy. It looks intriguing, and I'm just happy to see Kiki Palmer get more acting roles. Oh, my gosh. Are there aliens? Are there, like, multidimensional slips? Like, what is this? It has to be That's aliens, what we're running with, that, right? Yeah, because there's that last shot of Kiki Palmer getting dragged up, and I'm like, well, what else could it be? You know, I don't trust, I don't trust these, like, um, full, like, there's certain sequences in trailers where if, if it's supposed to be, like, a real, real life setting, and then all of a sudden something supernatural happens, sometimes I write it off as, like, oh, that's going to be a dream sequence, or that's going to be, like, a nightmare sequence, right? And because that's what they'll do, they'll, they'll tease you like that. And so part of me wants to be, like, meh, I don't trust it. But the other part of me is diving headfirst and going, oh, yeah, we're getting an alien Jordan Peele movie. But, hey, we'll see. It's uh, it's clearly not um, revealing its full hand, you know, off the bat. They want you to want you to have that itch of, of unknowing. Look, for all the for all the ways we trust Jordan Peele to make great movies, we also don't trust him to market his movies. That all being said, uh, let's move on to, of course, the big deal of the day. Doctor Strange. Uh, first full-length trailer really gives us a glimpse into what the movie is. We got the kind of uh, post-credit scene in No Way Home. This gives us a more clear look at what Sammy Raimi is doing. What did you think about this? Because there's a lot. In that first teaser, we just knew who was going to be in it. We knew that America Chavez was showing up. Now we officially have shots of Wanda facing herself in the interdimensional space or wherever she is when she approaches herself. And it's almost like we're getting an angle of Wanda where she has gone full you know, chaos magic, or she has gone full, like, there's scenes where she's covered in blood, and there are notions explained in the trailer where if they both make the same decision, one's end up, one ends up evil, whereas if they make the other, the other ends up evil, and I think that that kind of, that fence or that decision is going to be, uh, like, the climax of the, of the movie. I, I'm here for it because, you know, writing into this, everybody's thinking, um, Buddy, uh, Wanda, and Doctor Strange, you know, moving through the multiverse together. Well, now it's like, are they going to clash? Like, is that the clash that that's going to go down? Um, big, big googly eyes for me. Like, 
<laughs> You're still wearing your costume from everything everywhere all at once, aren't you? <laughs> um, yeah, this looks great. You know, I guess I should just pose the question to you. How much multiverse stuff are we getting in this movie? And is that voice in the what seems like the TVA, is that Charles Xavier? Is that Professor X? I don't know where this movie's going, and that's why I'm right behind it. Like, lead me into the darkness, Stephen. I will follow you because there's a fan-made poster where somebody threw in, like, Kang. They threw in um, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. And then you saw a still image of Professor X, not from the movie, of course, because nobody knows, but him on that fan-made poster because that's the territory we're entering where, you know, we don't know. We don't know what Marvel's doing. We don't know if they're like, hey... You, guy from these X-Men movies, we're going to shoot you in for this one scene and then we're going to tease it, you know? Uh, I just don't know, Brandon. And I'm I'm happy for them, but oh my gosh, yeah, it makes my feeds, it it aggravates me when on my feeds, everybody's trying to answer the same question. And I'm like, no, let's just, let's ride it. Let's ride the mystery. Let's just go in blind. That's that's more of how I approach these these mysteries and marketing. Uh, How about you? I'm of two minds on this and I'll say this much. On the one hand, I want to see the magic stuff from that 2016 movie expanded upon more with the madness of the multiverse all thrown in. On the other hand, I, I'm i sure you've seen this theory too, that if that's Professor X, that that might be a version of the Illuminati, which in the comics is kind of like the big head honcho secret organization of the Marvel comics, and like it's alternate versions of Professor X and Iron Man and Reed Richards. And if that's the case... I'll admit that's a really cool idea, especially when Earth Prime has been screwing everything up for the last few years. Sorry, it's a total sidebar. When I was doing some exploring on Marvel uh, comic lines like to read, Illuminati was one of those that I was most interested in because um, the team also includes Black Panther. And I was like, I don't know how, like what their hive mind would look like. That's just my input is like, if it is that kind of team or that kind of like scale of power that we're approaching, this movie is going to be insane. Um, do you think it would rival Spider-Man No Way Home's box office? No, I don't think it will. Because I think at the end you of the day... You answered that quickly. Wow. No, I've been thinking about this. And I think at the end of the day, Spider-Man had not just the hype of what's going to happen in this, but it's also Spider-Man, who is just 20 times more identifiable than Doctor Strange is. Which that sucks that we have to say that, but it, it just is. And at the same time, it was like late in the holidays. Like there's a bunch of factors that factored into why Spider-Man did so well and it. I hope Doctor Strange does great, but I don't think it will because of, you know, everything going on. I hear you. I hear you. Well, it's not too far away from us. And that I'm the most thankful for because long gone are the days where you get a trailer and it's like, you know, three years away. I'm looking at you, Avatar 2, 3, 4, and 5. Which is still set for this year. We'll see. Yeah, we'll Um, see. As far as things that we will see, though, that's a good transition into our next topic. And I could stay on Super Bowl things, but we got to move on. Paramount Plus has made a lot of news this week. Uh, earlier last week, they made a whole Twitter thread about their investor call about all the amazing projects that are in the works for them. And boy, howdy, do we have some things coming from Paramount+. Plus. Uh, the biggest news that I want to take away from this, all Paramount Pictures films will be exclusively released on Paramount+, Plus after their theatrical run. So that means that, you know, Quiet Place, uh, Top Gun, Mission Impossible, every Paramount Pictures film, at least for the time being, after their theatrical release, will be exclusively streaming on Paramount+, Plus, which is a huge gain for a service that I know a lot of people have been mixed on, but it's a big gain for their library. On top of that, they announced a lot of brand new content. Uh, the fifth Transformers film, Rise of the Beast, which is actually going to have uh, Anthony Ramos in it, I believe Stephen Campbell Jr. from Creed 2 is set to direct. That will actually be starting a new trilogy starting next year, in addition to a new TV series. Uh, we got a third Sonic film confirmed and a Knuckles TV series in the works, which is very surprising to me. 
Uh, we got confirmation on a bunch of new SpongeBob projects, on a bunch of new uh, iCarly projects. Uh, Bi Blue's Big City Adventure, which is going to be a theatrical Blue's Clues film with all three Blue's Clues hosts, which is, I know people have been joking like, ah, oh, it's Blue's Clues, No Way Home, and like, you're gosh darn right it is. Uh, the biggest piece of news, though, was Star Trek, the fourth Star Trek movie with this cast. So Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, all those guys. It was confirmed. It is set to come out with actually Matt Shankman from WandaVision directing. However, a few days after this announcement was made, there was an other article basically saying, uh, the cast don't know about this. Like, this was basically a surprise to them. They didn't know they were going to be shooting by the end of the year. So maybe this was a jump the gun moment for Paramount. Maybe they have a script in place and they just didn't tell anyone, which is a little concerning. Uh, Neil's to say, you can find the whole thread of this. We might link it in our episode bio uh, description. Noah, I want to go over to you first. What are your thoughts on this really substantial expansion to the Paramount Plus library? And which of these announcements of the many stood out to you? This is huge. This is a big win in my book because now I know I'm not clicking on subscribe on my, um, I mean, if anything, I'm renewing my subscription because it probably ended by now. Um, there's so much value here that I think uh, fans, if they're not tuned in now, they'll be tuned in as soon as that first release comes out. And then it's streaming the same day on, on this platform. Like that's going to get everybody, that's going to get everybody involved um, on social media. That's going to get uh, people with um, issues around, uh, accessibility. It's going to give them opportunity to enjoy the same type of media out there in the world, which we're, which is so important still. Um, it's nice to know that this Halo series is already going to be renewed for season two. That's that's a win for me. I haven't even, I haven't even checked out. Oh, well, it's not released yet, but once it comes out, you know, I'll be excited to see that. And then Transformers, um, this is Transformers 5. Uh, I'm ready for it. You know, I, do I always end up seeing them somehow way or another? Somebody sneaks it into my, it sneaks, sneaks it onto my TV and I end up watching them. Yes. Do I seek them out? I like, I like shy. I like the earlies. I like, I like Bumblebee. I, I love, I love Bumblebee. Let's bring back Haley Steinfeld. Maybe she's busy with Hawkeye season two. We don't know. Um, getting so high. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but like I said, big win for any Paramount Plus kind of like on the fencers. I know I'll be telling my friends and family, my network, that uh, this is a streaming this is a streaming service uh, here to compete. And with this news, it's actually you know I'd be curious to see how it how it stands or how it um, uh, how it holds itself against other of the, of the other streaming platforms. Not of course the giants like HBO and Netflix, but you know it, it's got to it's got to achieve some level of um, growth with this deal, and I can't wait to see that. I really like what they did with the um, with the J.J. Abrams, Justin Linverse, and I want to see that continue with that cast. The fact that we literally heard a few days afterwards, the cast had no idea, is, again, very concerning to me. I don't know how well this project... I don't know if you remember, like, Quentin Tarantino was attached to a Star Trek movie at one point. Uh, S.J. Clarkson from Jessica Jones was. They've been trying to get this off the ground for a long time, and I just keep getting more concerned that it will never actually happen. I will tell you, I, the Blue's Clues news is adorable to me. Like, I love the idea of nostalgia crossovers in terms of like child TV. Like we're going to be watching this. This isn't less for five-year-olds, but like, I love the idea that it exists. Um, and I call it season two, which I found actually kind of delightful. So I'm excited that's getting renewed. Uh, Oscars are announcing some pretty major changes. Uh, if you've been anywhere on film Twitter or even just in the entertainment space in the last week, you know this. Uh, earlier this week, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences in tandem with ABC announced that not every Oscar category is going to be broadcast live. Instead, the Academy announced that eight categories, uh, documentary short, film editing, makeup and hairstyling, original score, production design, animated short, live action short, and sound will actually be pre-taped and shown throughout the broadcast to make room for what they quote as 
comedy, film clips, and musical numbers. Uh, there was actually a similar move to this in 2019, when the Academy attempted to kind of uh, move cinematography in the short categories to pre-tape, uh, when the Academy attempted to move cinematography in the short film categories to other nights, didn't work, they revised it a few days later. They have still not revised this later, even though there has been a lot of backlash about this, and I'm sure we'll get into it. Uh, the Oscars are still set to premiere on ABC on March 25th. Amy Schumer, Wanda Sykes, and Regina Hall are still set to host. Noah, over to you. This has gotten a lot of backlash for the second time in recent memory with the Academy. We know that this is to kind of bolster viewer response, to bolster interest with the Academy. Is it worth it? Is there another way, or is this just another vain attempt to garner viewers? I don't think it's worth it, Brandon. I mean, I'm looking at this now, and these are categories that I've been, you know, I've been making efforts to be more excited about because of my interest in, in the industry and because of the the friends that I have around me who um, who we get together and we talk about these things. Uh, as early as 2020, um, I paid closer attention to them because we were, you, myself, and Sam were all covering the category predictions for the Odyssey online. And that was, I had so much fun doing that. Like it gave it so much more value to me. And what I imagine is the value that it uh, retains for all of those fans who check in year after year. And if they receive backlash once because they tried to, I don't know, like what, try and condense the programs to award viewership. Now we're kind of, to me, it just seems like it's less effort, less care put into uh, what these awards mean or, or what the presentation of these awards could look like for the winners. And that's a shame because these are still categories that we like are riding strong for and that we, we are, um, you know, big fans of. It's really a shame that they have this full list of categories, yet they feel the need to add some distinction to only, you know, a handful of them. The idea that ABC has been trying now multiple times to make the Academy Awards something that they aren't. In an era where I think we forget sometimes, TV cable, TV, uh, TV cable subscriptions are going down and the Academy has not switched to a digital format. Like there's a reason Super Bowl has expanded with, you know, ESPN packages and, you know, digital sports deals. They're never going to be that, let alone for film fandom. And the fact that they keep trying to do this Two categories that would never otherwise get the attention or acclaim that they deserve, like cinematography, like sound, like score, which I'm freaking furious about. Like the fact that they aren't giving those the time. And let me rephrase. They are giving them the time of day to a degree. They're going to be pre-recorded. They're going to be there. They get their time in the spotlight. Sure. But they don't get the same kind of attention that every other level of the, the idea of the Oscars is that they are the 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 torchbearer of the film industry. The reason why I don't take the Grammy seriously is because they do this all the time. They pre-record results. They post winners via social media. It's infuriating because it makes them feel less special as a pedestal of the industry. If you want to make it that, make it that. But this is a bad step in turning this into the Grammys, and I really don't want that for the Oscars. Yeah, when we talk later today about Cyrano and it's one nomination on the oh, Oscars, we'll get list. to it. For costuming, uh, when I when I was reading, you know, this list of uh, categories that will be pre-recorded, you know, at least my heart did feel happy, and and you know, I could sing my praises for Cyrano because at least the costuming category will still be included in that live broadcast, which I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here with uh, I'm here with pom poms for. So, uh, if you have anything else, Brandon, please share. 
Totally. And like, I'm glad that that's there. And I'm glad that the people who get those categories are there. Why have we not seen other branches of the Academy, like the Director's Guild, like the Writer's Guild, support this? Like, that just makes it foolhardy. On top of, like, the all the other things going on with the Academy right now, with the vaccine leniency, which is probably for Van Morrison to perform because they want more musical numbers, which is just so misguided. The fan vote, which I don't know if you saw some of the fan moments uh, for, like, the what is it, the fan cheer vote? Uh, that's going to be either No Way Home, I think Dream Girls, or The Matrix. Yes, yeah. yes, I, I heard about that. Um, just just its announcement. That's all I know. But yeah, that this is new for the Academy to have like a popular vote category, right? It is, and it's blowing up in their face because Cinderella with Camila Cabello is winning. No, no, no! Did they not really? listen to my review? This is terrible. Damn. Yeah. Um. Tidy it all up. I think the Academy Awards are fantastic. I really like them. I like this batch of awards this season, and I want them to be recognized for what they are as achievements in filmmaking. And I think this is a misguided move, I think, by ABC. I don't think this is the Academy's fault. I wholly put the blame on ABC until I hear otherwise. And I just really hope they get this settled out, like in 2019, in a few days' time, with all the backlash. All right, with that being said, we're going to move on to our quick hit segment. This is the moment where if you just want a quick piece of news, uh, Noah, if you would like to go first, uh, you are following up on some Paramount Plus news. Thank you, Brandon. My minute starts now. So continuing off of that Paramount Plus, um, you know, big bang of a thread that we received on Twitter. Uh, the timestamp is February 15th. I'm going to read you one that is all about The Quiet Place. So the next installment of Quiet Place is coming in the next year, and it's going to be directed by Michael Sarnowski. But there's additional news here. It says A Quiet Place Part 3 is coming in 2025. So we have two things here. We have one, which is like the next installment of A Quiet Place. So are we thinking it's going to be a spinoff? Are we thinking it's going to be kind of like a just a one-time tale about someone else's family? Because we've been following John Krasinski. We have Emily Blunt and their family. Uh, Millicent Simmons, um, her as well. And she's receiving recognition from that. So the next Quiet Place movie isn't going to have that family. It needs it needs some some kind of powerful detail in order for us to ride strong and be prepared for 2025 with that part three. And that's my time. And if anyone can provide a different perspective, it's Michael Sarnowski. Um, on to my quick hit in three, two, one. So this actually pertains slightly in adjacent to Paramount and all of their news. This pertains to Skydance, who is a production company that Paramount works a lot with, with uh, David Ellison. Terminator movies, Mission Impossible, uh, recently on uh, Without Remorse, Mike Lee Jordan. They have launched their animation department in recent years, headed by, we'll get to it, uh, but they have recently acquired a pretty big uh, bullet in their animation gun. They have acquired Brad Bird's next movie, Ray Gun. Of course, Brad Bird on the Incredibles movies, Iron Giant. The project has been developing since the 90s. It's described as kind of this animated noir amalgamation of like Buck Rogers serials and 1940s pulp novels. However, the noble piece of information here, uh, he is reteaming with John Lasseter, the former head of Pixar, who became the head of animation at Skydance Animation when he was ousted by Pixar for numerous sexual misconduct allegations. Uh, no announcement has been made in terms of like whether he is still on the project or not. I need to look into that. It's a very interesting power grab by Skydance, and I'm not totally on board, but it's Brad Bird, so I have to be interested in time. That was a great quick hit. Good job. Yeah, like it's Brad Bird. Yeah, it's also John Lasseter. Okay, sure. Why not? Uh, yeah. Let's move into our new releases for this week. We've got technically five. Uh, we'll get to those in just a moment. We're going to start out with a movie that uh, actually for Fourth Wall Break, we both have a movie today that we just recently watched this morning. So we're both coming with slightly fresh perspectives. Uh, I saw this a couple weeks ago. Noah just saw this this morning. It is Pedro Almodovar's Parallel Mothers, of course, which garnered uh, Penelope Cruz recently a Best Actress Academy Award nomination. Uh, this is her 
oh god, I think like eighth or ninth collaboration with Almodovar. They've worked together for a long time. But again, this is the newest project from Almodovar, who is an acclaimed Spanish director. If you're not familiar with him, um, Pepe Luchibon, uh, Volver, The Skin I Live In. He's worked a lot with Antonio Banderas, uh, Pain and Glory from a couple of years ago, which Antonio Banderas also got a Academy Award nomination for. This is written and directed by Almodovar. It stars Cruz as um, Janice Martinez who is a photographer slash archaeologist. I say slash archaeologist because part of the movie is her excavating a mass grave from the Spanish Civil War with her partner slash romantic partner, uh, Arturo, who in the movie is played by, forgive me, Israel Alejandre. She is giving birth to a baby that she thinks is Arturo's. They have kind of an on-off thing for a while. She meets another mother named uh, Anna, plays by Melina Smith. They kind of bond for a while. The movie kind of time jumps all over the place between their two lives. Uh, Anna is dealing with a mother who is an aspiring theater actress. She's trying to traveling all over Spain. She's not really available for her and the baby. Eventually, we get to a point where the two kind of reconvene. They start to trade tips about motherhood. They become friends, maybe even more. And as they get closer, there also starts to be the split between the two, all while this whole subplot with the mass grave is also being explored between uh, Janice and Arturo. Uh, Noah, over to you first. I know from our pre-show discussion, you were not super familiar with Amaldivar's work, and you just saw this recently. So I'm wondering just your initial thoughts on this. What do you think of Parallel Mothers? Brandon, I'm so thankful to you for being so patient with me and my uh, movie watching schedule because uh, fourth wall break to our listeners, Parallel Mothers had been on our coverage list maybe for the past two episodes. And I had just uh, repeatedly requesting Brandon that we hold on it because I believed in, in my schedule allowing enough time for me to go check out this movie because it was uh, it was beautiful. It was amazing. It was, it was visually um, so appealing. Looking at my notes, my very first line that I have here is, holy crap, does this man know color? This isn't like a tale of globe-trotting, different, you know, adventure-scale settings, uh, which we'll get to. But in this film, you know, whether we're in the interiors of homes, in offices, um, sitting on a terrace, or uh, like Brandon mentions, there's a subplot that involves an excavation site where we kind of explore a smaller village. No matter where we are, color just seems to pop in every scene. Um, Penelope Cruz, Cruz, can own the color red like it's it's hers like nobody else nobody else is allowed to wear it uh she was amazing to watch in this film uh, i think the last thing that i seen her in honestly was uh pirates of the caribbean on strangers tides and um that's a shame because i've i've missed her like i've i've definitely um have come around on appreciating her as an actor and i i need to see more films um where she has this leading role because the nomination doesn't surprise me in the least it is completely deserved i think uh from the start i thought this movie was going to have predictable threads for me to follow but you know save for one i found myself mostly surprised by every corner that was taken it just transitioned so well. You know, we moved from the beginning to the end. And before I knew it, this two hour movie was over. And I was like, damn, where's the rest of this work? I pitched to Brandon, we bring in a, uh, an emergency directorial debut button because I need a siren to fire off when, when either one of us is so compelled by a, a movie that we cover where we go, let's explore this director's first work because I'm curious to explore value there. Um, TBD on the EDD to you, Brandon. Yeah, if you guys want us to cover uh, Pepe Luchibon, which is uh, Amodovar's first project from, I think, like, 94, please let us know in comments. And also any directorial debuts, like, we're open to suggestions. Uh, I really like this movie. If it had come out last year, because I consider this 2022, even though it is technically 2021, I don't know if it would have made my top 10, but I admire a lot about this movie. Specifically, how Amodovar kind of navigates what could have been a very messy story. And I think Amodovar really centers it all 
on the relationship between Janice and Anna, who are played both fantastically, both by Penelope Cruz, who I don't know if she's ever been better, because again, I don't know Maldovar's work, and they apparently work the best together. Uh, I did really like her in uh, Painting Glory a couple of years ago, so there's that. But Melina Smith, I've never heard of her, but she's fantastic in this. She owns the role of Anna so much. There's this kind of quiet, seething confusion to her that I think really comes through across the character. And the relationship with her mother is fascinating. Like, it's not antagonistic, but it's certainly not good enough for what should be a new mother. There's clearly not a support system there. But as we see, you know, the two kind of learn from each other and kind of like where Janice wants to be a mother and how Anna wants to be a mother and kind of like that intersection of it all, we see this really baseline understanding about love as a whole, unconditional and the way that those can be conditional, whether or not certain, certain things come up. And certain things do come up in the movie. And I was really intrigued at how, again, Amador kind of navigates it all. And a lot of the technical team comes back from a lot of his movies. Uh, Jose O'Kane, who's the cinematographer on this, uses a lot of that sense of color. I love that you brought that up. That is a thing that a lot of people brought up with Amaldivar's movies. Uh, and if you get a chance to watch Pain and Glory, it's the same thing. Like, all the apartments look, like, gorgeous and, like, the kind of ceramics of it all. Um, Alberto Iglesias does the score. Phenomenal here. And again, the whole thing is, you know, what does motherhood mean? What do, how does that translate to generational trauma? And I was just really engaged by a lot of it. You know, I'm I'm not a person who knows all those camera terms. So when I think about this movie, I think like, okay, they must have shot on location. And that's why, you know, all this film composition stuff. Like, I wish I was that guy, but I'm not. I'm mostly the person who's like, I'm watching it and it feels like it's not a big cinematic feature. It just feels real to me. And that's what I think is so important is while I was watching it, I was like in the room with them or I felt those intimate moments, whether it was between you know, characters A, B, or like, you know, we're following this other storyline. It's just something about this movie feels really genuine. My big negative of the film, and I shouldn't say big because I still really appreciate this, I don't think he quite nails the Spanish Civil War parallel. I understand where he, especially in kind of the film's final moments, which I know are supposed to have kind of this catharsis and kind of gut impact that he's looking for. I didn't find it there. I know people have kind of been mixed on that aspect. And I kind of agree because, like you said, when Almodovar focuses on Janice and Anna's relationship, whatever that might be, and how the kind of dynamics of that shift and that kind of intimacy, it works in spades. When it tries to expand, you can tell that not only is it a two-hour movie that's trying to burst at the seams with content, it's a two-hour movie that can't quite figure out how it wants to shift its story. And that was kind of the one thing that I felt like, you could have nailed this better. I do have also a slight negative and that was this movie time jumps and it never tells you when or how or why it immediately like I wasn't as I, I did find myself getting a little lost maybe I'm supposed to be a little lost you know <laughs> I'm playing that game with my head um questioning at times but uh, that's my negative perfect uh let's move on to ratings I've been jumping back and forth in this I'm gonna still give it an eight and a half you can even tell with how you know muddled it can feel He's passionate about, you know, motherhood and the Spanish Civil War and, you know, reconciling with the past and all of that coalesces into here. And I'm astounded at how well it works, even if it doesn't always work. I think that'd be unfair of me to ask, uh, especially from me who doesn't know a ton of his filmography. You come for Kruth, you come for Smith, you come for the technical aspects of it. And if you are willing to get invested, you're in for a really emotional gut punch that has some great twists in it, that has some really great movement to it. And even if it doesn't all entirely work for me, I respect the hell out of it for existing. I'm going to jump back to my point about this movie being, at least for myself, unpredictable, where like when it came to, you know, what was going to happen next. But when we explored more of their roles as a mother and the child that they bear, uh, that was the piece where I was like, 
oh, is it going to be this thing? And then it was, it didn't undermine the film for me. I still had so much fun watching it. And it's not like I was like, you know, happy go lucky the whole time, but I really was entertained. I was so happy to be taking in this, this new director's work who new to me, honestly, I want her to take home that win now. Uh, but I'm not opposed actually. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give this a solid eight, eight out of 10 for me. Yeah, and again, shout out to uh, Paolo Torres, who uh, did the costuming for this and is a contributor to Amaldivar's workshop. Um, we're going to move on to a bit of a kind of different thing for us. Noah saw two movies that I'm too terrified to see. We have uh, The Curse, which is playing in theaters this week, and we also have Netflix's remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Noah, I'm going to lead it over to you. Uh, you know more about the second than I do. I'm going to give you a couple minutes, so uh, tell the people about some scary things. You've got it, Brandon. Okay, so we're trying something new here over on our movie review side of things, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that is the new film that uh, released on Netflix just in the past couple of weeks. Um, you'll, you might hear some buzz or see some buzz over social media over how gory that film is. And believe me, those kills <laughs> definitely are. Um, and then the second film I'll be talking to shortly on is the film The Cursed. And that actually received a wide release. This movie is in theaters right now, so you can uh, check that one out. Um, so first, I'm just going to talk about uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Of course, this is like a legacy horror title. Uh, we have Leatherface returning, and we have um, the iconic horror weapon, the chainsaw. You know, uh, We all got an early trailer and some early still images just... Uh, the, the short of the plot is that we have a new group of 20-somethings, you know, young adults traveling to this small town. They hope to reinstate, like, the popularity of what this space could be. They want to open up new shops. They want to kind of clear house with who's already living there uh, the best way that they can. They go to, like, buy property, but they realize that this property is already owned by a member of Leatherface's family. And when she gets into a debacle of ownership with this group of adults that are coming in, she ends up having to have a medical emergency. And so that really brings uh, Leatherface's rage to a point to a point that he grabs his weapon and he starts going to town in the in the way that we in the fashion that we know, whoever seen tech, whoever seen the Chainsaw Massacre movies, what results is a bloodbath that stretches for a very short hour and 21 minutes. I had to look that up because I was going to quote uh, 90 minutes, but it actually isn't even that. Um, this is a. Uh, a movie that's coming out uh, kind of like as a, you know, Scream taught us one thing for any fans who saw it, and that's the concept of a requel. So that's kind of like the reboot sequel. So that's kind of what you got here. You know, there are some, uh, spoiler alert, there's going to be some familiar uh, players who return or one player who returns. That is an interesting inclusion for a short film like this, where I was expecting kind of like new narratives, new angles to be pushed here. But I'm going to talk about the the things that stuck, because if you're watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I promise you, you're not watching it for the story. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre left memories of, we're talking body mutilation, but not distasteful. You know, we're not talking like, um, for the fans of horror, I think you know what I mean when I say that there's like tasteful gore and then there's distasteful gore, um, at least for myself, uh, you know, not to not to share too much of too much of my opinion on this, but I actually wasn't a fan of the gore displayed in Midsummer because I felt like that was just a little bit too um, outlandish for me. Uh, I prefer, you know, those, those, those quick decapitations, quick body cut in half. Um, and that's what Texas Chainsaw delivers. I think it's, it, while it still is a um, slasher film, it still is able to 
capture a little bit of the dread that you're expecting walking into these movies. You know, it's not always scary just to see the blood immediately start pouring out of somebody. What's scary is the moments leading up to that. And I felt like this movie, while it was short, there were a couple moments where I did find myself holding my arms or breathing, breathing even quieter because I was in the position of the characters feeling that he was right around the corner. Uh, we do have some, we do have a, a sister relationship that takes kind of like front and center as the, as the stars of this movie, which I think are okay. You know, I think at times it does get a little annoying because I feel like a, 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 an adult sister with her minor um, younger sister just gives her like some plot armor. So I never like um, take that as like, Oh, you know, they're going to be treated just the same as everyone else. Of course, I didn't think she was going to die, but a lot of people do. Um, this movie also includes the new addition of like, I, I think Marry Me does this as well, where they're going to start showing um, new technology uh, or how technology looks modern day in these movies. So like we have an Instagram live of Leatherface, like about to take out this party bus full of, um, you know, drunk adults. And that kind of was like, I think it stuck out. Like it made me kind of annoyed because I'm like, well, this is like less of a movie and more of like just a, a feed now. And that's what I get away from. That's why I go to the movies. You know, I'm getting away from all that. I'm entering like the cinematic world and that's not very cinematic to me. It's short. There's blood. Did I walk away going meh? Maybe meh, but with a smile because <laughs> there was some cool kills here. Uh, but I don't actually see myself returning to, uh, too quickly to Netflix to check out this movie. You know, I'm moving on now to The Cursed. So when we talk The Cursed, you know, I can get my ratings as well just at the end. Um, I covered The Cursed or I will be covering The Cursed. You'll see a, a review for me coming out on Odyssey online. And this is a film that uh, is directed by Sean Ellis. It's going to be or just hit theaters, sorry, on Friday. So this has a release date of February 18th, 2022. So sorry, it actually hit theaters last Friday from the moment we're recording. Um, but let's talk about this. Let's talk about the very interesting plot here because we are working with, um, I'll read you what IMDb says. That says, in rural 19th century France, a mysterious, possibly supernatural menace threatens a small village. John McBride, a pathologist, comes to town to investigate the danger and exercise some of his, some of his own demons in the process. There really is two leading roles here that I want to shout out. There's Boyd Holbrook, who plays John McBride. That is the pathologist who travels into this estate to investigate, you know, what's affecting this pocket of children. And then there's Kelly Riley. Uh, her character's name is Isabel Laurent. And um, she is a primary character in this uh, story as well. This movie, I don't think I'm giving away too much by letting you know that it is a, a kind of a creature feature. Um, it's definitely supernatural horror. I think in one of the most like refreshing ways possible because this movie very quickly, I'm just going to say it, it's probably, um, have I seen other horror this year? It's, it's probably, it's going to be my top contender of horror for the year so far. Like it's, so far, it is a it is a horror that brings you lore, like that brings you um, a narrative thread that you can easily follow start to finish, and it feels complete. Um, visually, this movie pulls off some new tricks with a uh, few jump scares here and there. You'll see the creature more than you see Jaws, like in the first Jaws movie, of course. But you know, myself, I watched it at home with this with um, with a roommate next to me, and they were turned off by that. But I think that this movie wins in other categories, whether it's in um, story or whether it's in the kills, uh, those definitely are going to reward plenty of attention. Um, you, you're spending a lot of time with the kids, the adolescents in the story, as they're exploring their territory, they come across um, something that feels like a ritualistic uh, site, 
and then they disturb something that then you have terrorizing them throughout the movie. And then the second half of the movie is really where John McBride's character takes over as the leading pathologist as he tries to navigate how to eliminate this evil. Last noteworthy mention is the performance by Boyd Holbrook. He has a familiar face, but I don't think I could pin it until I looked up the actor's uh, history. So he actually was the uh, the man like hunting down Logan in the movie <laughs> Logan. This definitely stretches his um, his catalog of what he can act in. Uh, yes, he's been in The Predator as well, uh, but I still feel like that was more of like a surface level um, acting gig for what he needed to pull off. I think that here he plays a, a desperate but, but caring, almost like a guardian character. He made it easy for me to feel involved in the story. Um, and if a horror can do that, then, you know, you're not watching just a gory horror. You're watching um, a thrilling piece of narrative with somebody who has a star power to lead it. You know, color me impressed. This movie was great. I'm going to now give my two ratings. Um, these are two movies that you can gobble up and eat uh, with no problem uh, before it gets you. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, available on Netflix now. Throw it on in the background while you're cooking some dinner, but don't let it spoil your meal. I'm going to give that a five out of 10. Uh, kills are worth watching, but you got n- really nothing there holding you except for that loud rev of the chainsaw, okay? And if that gets you going, by all means. Second rating is looking at The Cursed. I'm giving that a seven and a half. Really impressed with horror this year so far uh, with Scream 5 and now with The Cursed. These are two titles in the avenue of horror that have left me feeling real terrified in theaters, but also so satisfied as a horror fan for what stories there still are to explore. And this, uh, The Cursed really does an excellent job of exploring um, like the history of the land uh, that was colonized before them. So if uh, that sounds interesting to you, I, I definitely recommend you check that one out. One, awesome. Two, I've genuinely heard cool things about the curse, which is interesting because it didn't look like all that much. Three, we're going to put a poll on our Twitter page. Do chainsaws get you out? Hey, do chainsaws get you going? Does it do it? Does it do it for you? We made plot devices to ask the real questions out there. We made plot devices for the community. <laughs> uh, let's move on because we're going way over this. Let's move on to our next major release. It has been a long time coming, Noah. I know you've been wanting to talk about this movie for at least a month, if not longer. Joe Wright's Cyrano is finally here with uh, Peter Dinklage, Haley Bennett, and, um, and Kelvin Harrison Jr. It's finally in theaters this week from MGM. You did a review for it for Odyssey. We'll link it uh, back in the description below. What is this movie about for those who may not know the myth of legend? Thank you. Um, for some reason, I thought I was going to sound like that, the amazing Cyrano soundtrack when I entered right now, but I didn't, okay? <laughs> And that's not my job. It is your job to go listen to the Cyrano soundtrack. All right. We have Joe Wright's next title um, now now going through a wide release after a couple of delays with its release schedule. I actually saw this movie back in December and was kind of holding off and keeping my my, um, tongue tight here on the pod because I've been desperately waiting to talk about it. It made it to my top 10 of last year's films. This stars Peter Dinklage, Haley Bennett, and Kelvin Harrison Jr. Uh, as the as the main three roles. As I said, Joe Wright returns after we covered Pride and Prejudice uh, in a directorial debut. And, uh, you know, just owning that style of period pieces, we have him again here exploring 17th century uh, France. And that is uh, in heavily involved with a, the love triangle that exists um, with Cyrano, Roxanne, and Christian. 
who are played by the actors I just mentioned. Uh, let me tell you the short of the story here. Uh, Cyrano, while typically a character that is regarded as an outcast because of his large schnoz or nose, um, now in this tale, he is more so considered an outcast because of his condition of dwarfism. He is a little person, of course, because we have Peter Dinklage playing, um, but he's not ugly. Now he's handsome because Peter Dinklage is so handsome. Um, the story involves Cyrano, who is a wordsmith. You know, this man is a master of the spoken word um, in a day where really that kind of could make you outshine others because you, you always had an audience when you were dueling or in the, in the age of the musical and of the balls. Uh, this was lovely to see. But Cyrano is in love with a companion of his. Her name is Roxanne. Approaching the age where in this time she should be married and uh, find herself a suitor. That way she can be taken care of financially. Cyrano, while in love with Roxanne, feels like he can't communicate that. So that's the first hurdle here. Then enters new soldier Christian, who, if you believe in love at first sight, and Roxanne definitely prescribes to it, her herself and Christian have that love at first sight moment in one of the opening scenes. And so Roxanne enlists the help of Cyrano to protect Christian as a new member of this, um, you know, war battalion, or, or right now, I believe it's just like as, as, a, as the guards in the streets. And Cyrano himself, he's a high caliber fighter. Either way, Roxanne asks Cyrano to protect Christian. And knowing uh, of their love, uh, when he meets Christian, Christian says, you know, I, I want to confess to Roxanne my feelings for her, this love at first sight, this, this emotion that I feel for her, all of his passion he's communicating to Cyrano in a lovely song called Someone to Say. Um, and he asks Cyrano to write his love letters that he intends to send to Roxanne. So you have the love triangle of, you know, person A being like, hey, write my letters for me to my love interest. And you have the love interest receiving the letters, believing they are all coming from the beautiful, juicy brain of Christian, when in fact, Cyrano is the one writing it. So are you falling in love with the person and what you believe they're writing? Or are you falling in love with the words? Brandon, you are fresh out of the theaters. Tell me how you feel, my newborn Cyrano fan, I hope. Yeah, this is real good. Uh, if we are counting it in 2021 in terms of musicals, I still think Tick, Tick, Boom is better. I still think I like In the Heights just a little bit more. But this is, to say respectful for a period piece is nothing new, but this feels respectful. It feels, you know, grand and not operatic, but sincere in all the right ways. I've seen a lot of people describe this as sort of the anti-musical, but I totally think that applies here because we'll get into the songs, but I think it very much makes this vibe that Joe Wright creates of something intimate, something sincere. And we should mention that this is based on a play by Peter Dinklage's uh, wife, Erica Schmidt, who wrote the screenplay with this. Joe Wright, who is uh, in, I believe, engaged to Haley Bennett. I don't know if they're married, but they're together. So it's a whole like kind of love square within the love triangle, which I think is very interesting to think about. Uh, but yeah, this movie is really good. Dinklage owns the screen, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But it's so great to see him having a role that is so distinct and complex and sincere as this. Uh, I love the pacing of the movie. I love how it kind of meanders throughout it. It does feel like a stage play at parts, but it all, in all the best ways, like it it goes from block A to block B to block C in so effective pacing for me that I was just really engaged the whole time. And oh my God, the music really appreciate a lot of this. I think it's totally worthy of your number three spot. I totally get why people love it. I'm not as high on it, but I will completely respect it. As soon as the movie starts, we get, you know, a, a couple of those, you know, I don't know if it's a piano, but probably like a piano tone. And we hear Haley Bennett's voice like a bird just swooping in and she's singing the, the 
the first song, which is titled Someone to Say, uh, which would go on to be like my one of my most repeated songs for the past two months. Um, but hearing her sing and looking over to my partner and being like, oh my gosh, this is a musical. Like that, if only you could see my face light up. And I, you know, I was, I was illuminating the theater for the entire runtime. There were few songs that I feel could be unnecessary, but that would be untrue. Like, I think that the entire score here really uh, works wonders for me. There is a moment there in the middle where we do have that full French Revolution scene out there, strums at your heart chord, and it works, at least if you're asking me. Other big things here are choreography. Whoa, choreography. Coming, you know, as a thespian myself, any theater actor, any actor listening, you know, no small parts. And that is sung here in Cyrano. There are so many scenes where we are relying on the, you know, pocket of 50 actors that are behind our leads who are uh, involved in choreography that picks up props. Like in my review, I mentioned swordography, doeography, because everything that they can work with in a musical number is involved. And I am feeling that level of just commitment from the team, from Joe Wright, it just felt so beautiful and it looks visually like stunning. Um, we'll get into costumes. Like Brandon said, the costumes here are, um, they're, they're fitting for the setting. They are eye-catching um, in scenes as Haley Bennett is our female lead. So she's going to have the most elaborate of costumes. Um, and so when there's a couple spaces where she's leading, I believe she's leading a, a female club and uh, there's, I think in those scenes where you can see more of what the dress is worn. Yeah, we should mention uh, Massimo Parini and Jacqueline Duran did the costuming. Uh, the latter, who is going to be doing the costumes for the Batman, which we're going to be talking about in just a week or two. And also, uh, of course, the Desners of the music and Seamus McGarvey, who's worked with Joe Wright on a number of occasions did the cinematography for this. The thing that was impressed the most with it is just how romantic this movie is. Like, if you have, this is an ode to lost lovers. This is a ode to, you know, the ones who were either too shy or were at the wrong time or the idea that love transcends what you make of it uh, and I think that kind of you know ties in like the poetry aesthetic as well like that idea of poetry is what you make it love is what you make it as well but maybe so pretentious uh, but I like that kind of angle and Wright and his cast are relishing in this specifically Peter Dinklage who is just fantastic like again he's so charismatic the action sequences are great that scene in the alley is awesome like it's not just cool it's flat out awesome um, and Haley Bennett almost steals the show. Uh, Calvin Harrison Jr. is just really improving as an actor. I can't wait to see him in Elvis. Uh, we didn't have to talk about the trailer, but he's going to be featured in that. Uh, ben Mendelsohn shows up and he's despicable in this again. Uh, but yeah, like the whole thing just has this air of kind of lovely, yearning melodrama to it that shouldn't work. And I think in Wright's hands works more than it should. If this doesn't take the award for costuming, this movie deserves that and, and so much more like it. I walked sorry, away going... Can we just talk for a moment about how MGM has botched this awards campaign? Like the fact that Peter Dinklage is not a front runner is ridiculous to me. Like get Javier Bardem out. There's other people you could put in there, but get Peter Dinklage in there. The fact that the Desners are not in there for score, let alone song is astoundingly bad to me. The fact that it's under the percent of photography is weird. You could have made an argument for screenplay, but screenplay was really packed this year. So just again, the fact that, this should be recognized more, especially by the Academy, but MGM was just like, no, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. And I'm like, you had a good movie on your hands. A great one. And this is a movie that is in theaters right now. Um, I believe it should be coming to Amazon Prime Video. Am I wrong? Yeah, because it's MGM. So it's probably going to be Amazon Prime, if anything. 
Yeah. Soon. It, I mean, I can't say soon, but as soon as it's available on streaming, if you're unable to make it to a theater, I, this is, this is a big recommendation for me. Cyrano is a movie you will fall in love with because you believe in the story that they're crafting here. Um, not only because they look the part, but because I think each song really hits those marks of the different perspectives you can have while falling in love or admitting your love. This was number three on my top 10 and it's not moving. You know, this was a wonderful movie to include. I can't confirm. Noah has tiny hearts floating around his head at all times. Uh, as far as ratings for me goes, uh, this is a solid eight. Uh, again, I don't think it, it's quite reinventing the wheel. It's not the best musical I saw in the last you know, year or so. But the stuff that it does well, it's really hard to resist this, uh, even at its most murky moments. Like the, the main trilogy of the cast are fantastic. You've seen the story before, but Wright does so much to imbue it with sentimentality and lovey dubbiness that, again, should feel more schmaltzy than it is, but it's great. It's classy. It's glamorous in all the right ways. And please go back and listen to the Desner soundtrack. It's phenomenal. The fact that they were not included in this award ceremony is a crime. Uh, and yeah, see it if it's on streaming. If it's in theaters, we, we both recommend it. It's going to be my second highest rated on the pod. It's going to be a nine and a half. I think this hey. is a Yeah. Like I said, I'd love it if you check it out my review, Odyssey Online. We're moving on to our final feature. Brandon, what can you tell us about Uncharted? So Uncharted is finally here. It's been years and years of delays to the point where Mark Wahlberg, who stars in the movie, was supposed to play the main role at one point, and now he's playing the mentor. So that should tell you how long this has been in development. This is the latest from Ruben Fleischer, who you might know best from his work on the Zombieland movies, on the first Venom movie, uh, 30 Minutes or Less. This is, of course, based on the acclaimed quadrilogy of games from uh, Naughty Dog, the Uncharted franchise, following acclaimed treasure hunter slash Indiana Jones ripoff Nathan Drake, played here by Spider-Man himself, Tom Holland. Uh, We pick up a little bit in a flashback with him and his brother Sam. One day, Sam runs off. Nate doesn't see him for a while. Cut to 15 years later. Uh, Nate is working as a bartender. He runs into a guy named Sully, who is in this movie is played by Mark Wahlberg. He's kind of, a again, shifty, jack-of-all-trades type. He's looking for a job to find uh, these two keys that also have the eyes of Antonio Banderas and Santiago Mangoda, uh, who is a Spanish banker, kind of a legacy figure in his family. He wants the keys to kind of restore his family fortune. We also follow uh, Chloe Frazier, played by Sophia Ali, who is another treasure hunter, uh, kind of an adversary of Sully and Nate. And finally, uh, Tati Gabriel as Joe, who is a mercenary who works alongside Antonio Banderas' character. whole thing translates into a big globetrotting expedition to find these two keys of this group of Spanish boats, which have a ton of gold in them. We follow Nathan and Sully's adventures all over the world. And the result is interesting. Noah, over to you. Uh, I actually did a review for this for ADSU Odyssey. It will probably be up by the time you are listening to this podcast. Uh, you saw this recently as well. Uh, what are your experience with the video game? And what did you think of this movie that, again, has been a long time coming and has been getting a lot of mixed reception? So talking Uncharted, um, one of the things that encouraged me to even check out this movie was just the fact that it was going to be one of the you know premier titles from... Uh, is it PlayStation Sony Entertainment Studios? You know, what, what is it called? Thank you, Brandon. Um, and this is going to be followed by, uh, we're getting a The Last of Us HBO series coming. Uh, of course, that stars Pedro Pascal. We've already known this. Um, sorry, I- I'm blanking because I was going to mention the other title with Anthony Mackie, but I don't even know what it is. Oh, so. um, uh, Twisted Metal, right? Twisted Metal, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Twisted Metal as well is coming from that same production company. So this is letting us know how serious to take these films. Of course, we have some star power behind those leading roles, which I'm happy that they got um, in Mark Wahlberg and Tom Holland. Uh, And with the character of Chloe being involved, this actually, to me, follows more of uh, the Uncharted 2 
uh, video game, which in preparation for recording, I decided to replay. And uh, for any video gamers out there, if you're interested in the story, just play on easy. Nobody's going to judge you. I'm not judging myself or at least trying to as somebody who always plays on. You don't need to know. So anyways, uh, <laughs> uh, returning to Uncharted. Um, I still love, you know, when I return to the game, I'm going to speak on the game just for a moment. I still love those tomb i just almost called it a tomb raider but but to me that's how i attribute it because i was I was welcome to tomb raider before i explored uh nathan drake's storyline but it's those uh dungeon crawling narratives where you're finding artifacts here and pieces of the puzzle there um that invite you to another country entirely um you're very often um exploring land exploring uh the globe uh if not by land by sea by by air we see um Nathan Drake here flying out of a, of a cargo plane um, in a very dramatic action sequence. Um, I love the environments in the video games and the buddy nature between Sully and Drake. You'll see that consistency in a lot of Naughty Dog's features, even as we transition into the Last of Us video games, because holy hell did that not win like so many awards for um, the team behind them. Uh, and this was, these were the kind of like the early games from, from Naughty Dog. Uh, if you're not counting uh, Crash Bandicoot too, um, did they get the characters right? Hmm. I'm going to give you a big hmm, because Drake, to me, he's a bit messier. Um, I describe him, uh, he's honestly a flirt. Uh, he's a flirt whose qualities aren't as refined as he thinks they are, uh, whether they are in his persuasion, um, in his stealth, in his sharpshooting, and I'm playing on easy, okay? So when I mentioned sharpshooting, um, that's what I'm talking about. But he's an excellent problem solver. If there's a problem in front of him, uh, whatever his resources are, he's going to pull them together. He always has a team behind him. Uh, not really, you know, while he can be independent, he kind of functions better as a, as a team member. Um, and he's going to get through whatever situation's thrown at him, whether it be like mythological or what you name it. Sully, well, he's kind of all those things as well, but he's more experienced and exhausted by them because there's an age gap there. He's an old chap. And uh, Mark Wahlberg and Tom Holland do pull off that, you know, uh, hey, boy, like, uh, what does he call it? Oh, hey, kid. Like, they pull off the, you know, the, the old veteran, the old timer, and the new kid uh, very well. I just felt like that, you know, if you want to get the characters right, I kind of needed to see something else from them. Um but I'm describing how I felt the characters were. And then as we're exploring Chloe in this movie, she is portrayed by um, Sophia Ali. Suave and conniving. She's introduced in the second game. She's at Nathan's level and then a few steps ahead on her own accord. They both are kind of a flirty pair because they have history, but that doesn't mean that their trust is exactly like at a high point throughout their time together. And this movie kind of scraps that. This movie instead introduces Chloe as an independent character, she was a fun character to explore in the movie because I expecting that independent character, I was waiting for her moment to shine. But anytime like we saw Nathan struggling, whether it was opening a door or just getting past like a group of bad guys, we saw her, we saw Chloe taking charge. And I think that that's a note that they hit right with that character. I did like that they pulled off that neat trick that few movies do where the opening sequence is something that happens in the middle of the story. They don't just show it to us again. They instead show us another perspective and Agreed. that to me was a rewarding move like that made me go oh okay like I was expecting one thing and you surprised me and that's the big win for me is if a movie surprises you it's going to be good 
Um, this was bringing, this was strumming chords of the mummy for me. You know, we have the architect, the type of like little totems that you have to go find um, in order to advance the mission. We're going to explore museums here and there. There's trap doors. And I love that. Like I haven't, I felt like I haven't gotten that in a while. Like going into this, did you take any criticisms of it really seriously? I knew it as much as I did a, you know, globe trotting treasure hunting, as I mentioned in the description, kind of Indiana Jones pastiche kind of thing. Uh, the spiritual brother to Tomb Raider, if you want to call it that. This movie's fun. And I will tell you why I think it's fun. From an audience perspective, I think it understands who Nathan Drake has to be for newcomers and what he has to be for, yes, fans of the game, but more or less that idea of an adventurer. Like, Ruben Fleischer and, um, I'm forgetting the co-writers, um, and Art Markham and Matt Holloway, who actually did the uh, first Iron Man movie, they have this understanding of Nathan as imperfect, reckless, but very much sincere in the way that a lot of people I've heard is not necessarily who he is, especially in the early games. But I kind of appreciated him as a character, especially what Tom Holland brings to the character, who I, I admit, like, I think when we all kind of heard it, it was just like, oh, well, he's in, you know, Sony's paybook, and oh, they're going with a younger Nathan Drake, and uh, it doesn't work. You know what? It works. Like, he really embodies this. Not just the physicality. Like, I think as a performer, I really think he channels the things about Nathan Drake that I've heard of, but also what this character is demanded as. Mark Wahlberg, not so much, but we'll get to it. Um, I will say Sophia Ali almost runs away with the movie. She has so much charisma in this. I haven't watched her show, um, The Wilds, on Amazon. Her chemistry with Tom Holland is great. She, she is not taking any garbage from either of these guys and has all the skill set to block it. Um, I will say the antagonists are okay. Like they start to get some depth in the third act, but by then it's too late. Uh, there is a really cool fight sequence between um, Tati Gabriel, Mark Wahlberg, and I think it's like a Domino's or a Papa John's, I think it was, but that was kind of neat. But like, again, I think this movie is fun and exciting for what it is. As far as keeping the momentum going, it doesn't always work. I think it's world building is shaky at best. And it's certainly a pastiche of a lot of other adventure things that we've seen, but I had fun with it. You're speaking no lies, Brandon. You will have fun. Am I though? But let's talk about the villains because for sure in in any of these like adventure tales, you do have your big bad that's like, ooh, I can't wait to explore that. Well, this movie doesn't really know what to do with Antonio Banderas or if they do, he's kind of just there. Like you hear him talk and you're like, oh, oh, he's probably going to be the bad guy. And then, yep, there's our bad guy. Keep in mind, this is the same guy who said yes to being the villain in SpongeBob 2. I'm just saying. (laughs) Oh my God. And then I did like the chase from them, but I still didn't feel like I knew which characters were involved directly with where, with where the story was going. Um, even by the end, it kind of seems like Chloe kind of like falls off and we're just back to uh, Nathan and Sully. And that was weird, right? Totally. And no huge spoilers, but there is that thing of Chloe is super prevalent for a while. And then, ah, she's going to come back. And she does for like a second yeah and then like bastards <laughs> you know that, yeah. that was it um you know if we're talking about Fleischer's work call me a big fan of Zombieland call me a big hater for Zombieland Double Tap what was that really? I, yeah I didn't like Zom- okay. Double Tap at all uh, moving on though um, <laughs> <laughs> um my rating six and a half um, I definitely find it watchable and entertaining. Um, you got some great stars to look at while you're watching it too, who do carry their roles as best they can. It's just a matter of, did the writers really treat this story as like an uncharted story? And then could our corrector, could our director bring that um, vision to life? I mean, look, congrats to Ben Fleischer for making a non-Zombieland movie that I like. 
does he make a great Uncharted movie? I don't know if I can speak to that. I don't think he makes a great movie, but he makes a good movie. And I think Sony was looking for this to be a good, solid movie, especially after all the delays and all the production stuff and, you know, just the stigma of video game movies. Side note, Tomb Raider 2018 is awesome. And I will die on that hill because that's another thing for another day. Uh, this is a very solid seven. I enjoyed this thoroughly. I think Tom Holland and Sophia Lee in particular do a ton more than what they're asked for. They really bring dynamics to characters who I think had everything against them and they really brought more to it than what I was expecting. Wahlberg doesn't work, but he fits with the chemistry that is being asked of him. The billionaires are, the villains are lacking. The action sequences are hit and miss. The set pieces can get a little bit wonky. And, you know, that third act does kind of veer into its own kind of universe. But you know what? If you like the stuff you see from the trailer, it's more of that. Uh, it's in theaters right now. It'll probably be on Netflix with that Sony deal uh, coming later this year. So if you're interested, I'd say give it a shot. Check out my review for ASU Odyssey for more. Well, Noah, if you're looking for fun and you've got the heebie-jeebies, it's time for us to move into our TV Streaming Wars nonsense segment. Uh, we've got two shows for this week to discuss, one being Peacemaker. We're going to get to the second half of that season one in just a moment. But before that, the Cuphead show is finally here. It's a thing that exists because we're looking for IPs, as in Netflix. Uh, the Cuphead show is, of course, based on the acclaimed, I believe, 2019, 2017 video game. I apologize. Uh, video game of the same name. Uh, Cuphead versus Cuphead show. You have Chad and Jared Moldenhauer who created the game on here as executive producers. It stars uh, True Valentino and Frank Todaro as Cuphead and Mugman, two adventurous brothers in a world of what I describe as like Spongebob meets Dumbo, uh, which is essentially just kind of a 1940s style cartoon on acid, so to speak. Uh, but they get into like weird adventures. Uh, they run into conflict with the literal devil, who in this is voiced by uh, Luke Millington Drake. Uh, they come into contact with a couple of other weird side characters. Um, a game show host named King Dice, played by uh, Wayne Brady. Uh, Greg Griffin plays a woman named Mrs. Chalice, who's kind of a con artist. And mostly a slice of life thing about the two brothers going through this weird, wacky, disney world, while also keeping Cuphead's soul from being stolen by, again, the literal devil. Uh, Noah, over to you first. Do you have an experience with the video game? I've had a little bit, and I want to know for you. And what did you think of the madness that is the Cuphead show? Heck yeah, I have some experience with the video game. Uh, this little title called Cuphead's made made its way to my Xbox uh, dashboard when a friend and I were looking for a couch co-op game. We're like, hey, we both want to sit down and just enjoy, you know, I was tired of beating him on Injustice 2, so we were like, what can we play? Oh, oh I'm talking to you. Okay. Um, Get smacked. <laughs> <laughs> we're uh, talking about now a new couch co-op game for us to play. Well, he introduces Cuphead to me, and very quickly we fall in love with the style. This 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 universe is so stylized, like Brandon says, 1940s on acid, um, and just has that like, like whistling, old-timey Mickey Mouse feel. Um, while while the video game explores the dark journey of these two um, brothers, the two brothers who um, have to pay back their debt to the devil. Like they, they, the literal devil is there like, Hey, you know, you, you wrong me. You can't escape. You can't escape. Um, and I, and I love that. I love that this show is, is looking so adorable and cute and it's pulling the, not so gory, but it's pulling the happy tree friends shtick of like, actually, we've got a lot of dark themes here that we're going to explore. Um, I think that uh, as a fan of, as a fan of the game, um, which is incredibly difficult, by the way, it can't be understated how that game is the game 
up there with probably Dark Souls that will break your controllers because you rage at it because you cannot. Um, there's two settings for every level, and that is easy and normal. And normal should actually be named um, so hard, so hard. Give me popular streamers. Ninja can't be defeated. Like, I don't even know other streamers, right? So it, this game is just incredibly difficult, but that's kind of like why I love it. Because like I said earlier, I don't know. I'm always um, hard difficulty adverse, uh, but we're exploring easy. We're taking it easy on ourselves now. 2022 is all about easy campaigns. Um, moving on to the TV show. Everybody here is, is wacky. They're goofy. We have like a, a teacup man who's like their, uh, their live-in like guardian or like, um, I don't know how to describe him really, but his character is just, it's so easy to, to fall in love with these different types. Elder Kettle. Thank you. Another episode that I explored was them having to babysit a literal like personified baby bottle. And that episode had me like, had me laughing so hard because it, because of the style that they have, they can pull off tricks that like you would expect from a Tom and Jerry show. Like, and that's, that to me gives me enough nostalgia to uh, stay with the series and keep seeing what it does. Like, it's a ride. You have some nice little pocket adventures to explore each episode. And it's so short. It's so bite-sized, you know? So to any viewers out there who are like, I just need to get something in during my lunch break. I should preface, this is 12 episodes at around 13, 14 minutes a piece. So you can get this done in basically an afternoon. Uh, as I basically did, I got it done in two because I have to go and work. Um, I have minimal experience with the game. I played it for about a couple hours with a friend on easy because I'm not insane. Uh, at least not in that regard. Uh, I heard about the difficulty and I wasn't going to deal with that. I had heard that it wasn't really all that much, like it was very slice of life, kind of early 2000s cartoon-esque, and I agree with that. And I think that's all it needs to be. I don't think every show needs to be She-Ra or Arcane or, as you mentioned, Amphibia, which those shows all do open to, you know, big, serious, serial kind of uh, story arcs and everything like that. This is very much just like, let's watch them, you know, try to get into a fight club to get some ice cream, or let's watch them, you know, trick the devil with an invisible sweater. Like, it's just, it's random nuttiness that these animators can really take on. And the animation is done by, I have the studio, uh, Lighthouse Studios, who do a great job with this, uh, like the games as well. Again, like every design is just so vibrant with motion and design and color to it. It's not substantive. Like if you're talking about Netflix shows, it's very much like you mentioned, watch in, watch out, turn off while you're, you know, doing laundry or whatever. But it's fun. Like if you can get past the, you know, ah, gosh, golly gee, cuphead, what are we going to do today? Like that kind of, you know, 1940s newspaper announcer. It's fun. Like it's not much, but it does what it does. Yeah, and other exciting cast members. I mean, we got here, I'm looking at the IMDb cast list. We've got Greg Griffin, who, for me, one of the most recognizable animated uh, voices or voice actors because of the Diablo games that I play, because of growing up in the Avatar series. Like, you know Princess Azula's voice. And when she pops up, I think at the end of the day, this is like, a, this is the two brothers and their and their shenanigans that they pull off together. And I like that that they have that, um, that connecting thread between them. Um, it, it gives it a little bit more of a... Uh, you know, that, that genuine appeal to uh, anyone who's, who's got a sibling like that, that's always trying to run off on adventures with them. Uh, let's go on to ratings then. I'm saying a solid seven for me. Uh, this is neither great nor terrible, as I think a lot of people are making out to be. I think this is genuinely entertaining. Uh, again, if you're a fan of any kind of, you know, old-timey 40s, 50s animation with a kind of modern sensibility to it, you're going to get a kick out of this. The music is fun. The characters are fun. It's great to see a voice actor community really get to make something weird out of this property that Again, shouldn't be shouldn't be taking itself to a story perspective, but the fact that it's made and that I was entertained as much as I was, yeah, I, it's cool. It's short. Check it out if you're interested. It's neither here nor there. There's a lot of things to be delighted by in this show. 
whether it's original characters, like the, I think the character designs are excellent here. Um, pair of boxing frogs, who would have thought a uh, cry, crying baby bottle, baby. Um, I wonder what happens when the baby grows. Bigger bottle, bigger milk carton, hmm? almond milk, soy milk. Oh, the no anatomy caution. of the show is weird because there's an episode where garden vegetables plant vegetables and it's, uh, I don't know. Hey, we don't ask questions here and we don't want you to ask questions about our ratings, okay? It's seven. Go check out Cupheads. It's on Netflix. It's going to be that great piece of material that you can take in um, without too much thought behind it. Like, and I think that's what we need sometimes. It's just a, a nice, I'm not going to call this a background show because you definitely should give it your attention. Um, but it has that appeal of like, hey, you need to get up and cook something. Like if you put on Cuphead show, on the, if you put on Cuphead show on your counter, um, you'll be entertained throughout your cooking process. Let's move on to our last topic of the day the second half of HBO Max's Peacemaker. Uh, we talked about the first half of the show, I believe a month ago at this point. It's been a while. Um, we're cutting into the other four episodes, episodes five through eight. Uh, real quick synopsis of the rest of it. You have Peacemaker and his crew uh, from the Argus organization going around trying to find the butterflies of this weird alien body statue collective. Things have been happening. Um, Economos kills a gorilla. There's a whole thing with uh, Chris's dad. Uh, there's this insane scene at a police station to um, uh, this one song that I'm forgetting the name of it, but Monster, she's my favorite monster. Yeah, more than I ever could. Um, and let's just say I I don't want to give away the the very end, but um, there's a scene there. So uh, Noah, let's go over to you first. Um, we talked briefly about the first half of Peacemaker a while ago. We were both very high on it, as is as has everyone basically been to this weird spinoff of Suicide Squad. Uh, what did you think of the second half of the season? Wow. To the to James Gunn, I mean, he didn't direct every episode, but as the person who created it, um, way to give me a reason to doubt you and then shove it in my face when I end up loving the show. Uh, Peacemaker very quickly became um, a, a, a one of my one of my favorite shows that I was waiting for, anticipating new episodes for every week. Um, up there with you know me waiting for a weekly episode release of Euphoria, of Demon Slayer, of Attack on Titan. Like pretty soon, I was like, okay, well Thursdays I wait for Peacemaker, um, and and I and I admire that. I think a show that can hold your attention and make you um, really beg for more. Um, is a show that I'm going to be writing behind in this show for sure. Um, we, in those final episodes of Peacemaker, you, the action doesn't stop. Instead, we're just getting closer and closer to what um, Operation Butterfly is really all about. Um, and that's not always so clear. You know, in the middle of the season, we did get um, one of the head honchos in the Butterfly uh, world eliminated. Their name is Goth. And Goth was then, um, Peacemaker writes it off as, uh, oh, I killed it. Um, but really he keeps it in a jar and he kind of learns how to communicate it, uh, communicate with it along with Vigilante, who just makes any situation hilarious. And <laughs> I want to study him because he is so, uh, he's a wild card at best. There's a lot that the shows offers in terms of, I guess, uh, like payoff, right? So we have a, a re relationship with his dad that is made kind of like, um, is introduced to us in the early episodes and we not, we're not really sure how far that's going to go even after he meets his dad, because we understand his dad is like this former super villain called the white dragon. And it culminates to a point where the white, we have an episode that is dedicated to the white dragon versus like peacemaker and, and friends. Um, and that's after, you know, so-and-so frames this person and this person does that. And this person is revealed as a butterfly the whole time. Like this show packs 
uh, plenty to keep you entertained. There's an ending where we are unsure of the fate of Adebayo's character. And I hated the way they played with me. <laughs> they played with me so hard on that one. Um, in this operation, Operation Butterfly, it's going to be hard to beat in the next season because this operation is a whole thing. Like entering it, you're like, okay, so these butterflies, what's going on? And you think that the most that you're going to see is these little like mouth tubes that come out of human that come out of the um the butterfly hosts when they eat it just gets better i promise like i'm sorry if i'm doing a poor job explaining but it just gets better not only is there a badass soundtrack behind every episode i was surprised by how much um adebayo's character it seemed like they were like less involved in the last act so i hope that that means that they're gearing up for like a more of like a redemption arc for herself and peacemaker's relationship in the next season um i did have fear over heart court's fate throughout the series um being such like a a cold not necessarily cold but like definitely guarded character i was worried that that was going to lead to her demise by the end of the show um but i'm happy with the way that things are moving I'll stop talking for a minute, Brandon, because uh, I talked a lot here about like what I expected out of the characters and how it, it like delivered in the last season. What really kept you engaged in that last half of the season? Where they were going to take it, really, because I, in the first half, I loved, but I was very curious to see how they'd intertwine the, you know, the main butterfly plot with Augie and the white supremacist kind of narrative of, you know, the white dragon. And it still doesn't totally work because, again, they... You know, they get rid of Augie in the penultimate episode. They were like, we need to get rid of him. But at the same time, I like the kind of twists and turns that they all take. I like, you know, Vigilante kind of stepping up to the main man in, you know, prison, trying to, you know, initiate himself in the game. However, Vigilante's morality compresses itself is beyond me, but the show does a great time with kind of managing it. Um, again, like the idea of Mern as a, as kind of the introduction into a more complex system for the butterflies of like, they're not just, you know, insane body snatchers. There are kind of, cults of personality within the kind of dynamics of it all. Adebayo gets some great stuff. Like, I love the kind of ending conversation between her and Chris. I think it really speaks volumes to where both of them has come as characters, especially Adebayo, who, you know, related to Amanda Waller, there's a hypocrisy there. It goes in cycles, much like Chris, because ah, it's all connected, uh, which I think is really cool. And I just think as a pure sense of fun that has a lot of subtext to say, like the initial half had, this tied together much more clearly than the first half did and just kept me invested in a lot of ways that I wasn't expecting it to. Yeah, and it's not afraid to uh, spend some time just having fun with the with totally. the ridiculousness of it, of it all. Peacemaker's got these absurd, you know, you've seen the chrome like toilet bowl helmets that he wears. Well, there's multiple versions of them and they all do something different. And, and the, the type of comedy that they pull off, even with those helmets is so funny. He has an anti-gravitational anti helmet that, <laughs> that activates almost immediately and floats away <laughs> and just stupid stuff like that make me smile watching a superhero show like this i think this finale for however you know nitpicks i have i think the second half of the season really ties together the idea of chris as maybe not a mainstay of the dc character of the dc pantheon but he belongs in this section of the universe like he has his own agency and while i do not think he's been redeemed from the suicide squad in the slightest he has at least proven himself on the track to that and i think that was gun's intention all along to be like yes there are cycles. There are things that are really difficult to break out of, no matter who you come from or no matter what part of life you come from. But there is track to doing good where good presents itself. Even with Vigilante, who kind of doesn't care whether he does good or not, he's still on that side and he's still making those choices. I think 
that kind of that kind of poetic nature I was not expecting in a show where again like you know people's heads get blown off every other minute and like a guy chainsaws a gorilla and like that all fits like it's a magic trick that the show works as well as it does and then for season two I hope they go more into Chris as a leader because I think he still has the ideas of yes um Rick Flagg but also his dad in his head of that idea and even Mern now of that idea of like father and leadership figures and like him having to step up I like the idea of that being more prevalent and hell, maybe even, you know, a suicide squad cameo here or there. I don't know. Maybe even a, uh, maybe even a like justice league type cameo in a peacemaker series, you know, maybe even something like that. Maybe even something like that. Who would have thought? No, that would never happen. Um, I, I don't know where I got the idea from Brandon. I think I just kind of imagined it. (laughs) Oh, but could you imagine if like Jason Momoa showed up on the peacemaker set? That'd be so much fun. Could you imagine Uh, if, if they t- if if they only showed two characters because maybe the other two like just couldn't be afforded or <laughs> in fact were busy, who knows? You know that sounds like a Warner Brothers thing, but maybe we shouldn't speak this in the universe. Maybe we could speak something better, uh, like our ratings, perhaps. Um, for me, this is an easy nine out of ten. I can't believe I'm giving it this high of a rating. Um, I also gave the Suicide Squad movie a nine out of ten, so it all kind of ties together. Uh, the show's great. It's so much fun. It's again. Maybe a little bit too long, maybe a bit too plotting at points, but for what it does, it succeeds in spades. The characters are all maybe not likable, but constantly interesting, and their dynamic is always interesting. James Gunn's style always comes through. The soundtrack, for the most part, slaps, even for how much it doesn't. Like it kind of it kind of neutrals itself out, uh, and just the whole show has this really great poetic sense of these kind of themes about it that I was just really not expecting to see from a peacemaker show. Um, and I think it goes to the idea that like people like James Gunn and Tom King have been doing in the past number of years. Any character can be interesting with the right approach, and this is the approach that I think works. Title sequence alone. Let's see how would I well, how would title I rate sequence it? is a ten. Yeah, I was like title sequence. That's an easy ten. Um, Eagly ten. Um, Vigilante new fave ten. Uh, <laughs> show as a whole. Um, while I I did approach kind of yeah close to a nine score. Um, part of me almost feels like the show was too short, but how can I complain about that when I'm like tooting every week that this movie was too long? Um, I think that while I appreciated the show and as big of a follower as I was every week, it's going to take just a little bit more familiarity around what these characters can solve together when they actually act as a team. Um, if this was a solo, like limited series, I think who knows, maybe I would even like it a little bit more. Um, but the fact that it's going to be continuing and that I need to pay attention to what this character can evolve into, it's going to be eight and a half out of 10. Uh, sorry for being kind of uh, long-winded on this. I just think that this show delivered a lot of what I wasn't expecting from a character that I thought would just be like a side table character in the future. Like, hey, we need to bring in somebody who can die in the first five minutes of Suicide Squad 4. Bring back Peacemaker. We'll give him, we'll give Rick Flagg his redemption. But instead, we got a whole series that fleshed out a character that really nobody gave any toots about, hopefully until you watched it. I look forward to the new additions to these kind of minor characters, which I hope we continue to see, because I think that this is an excellent uh, platform for them to explore that. And with that, that'll do it for episode 22 of Plot Devices. Thank you so much for feeling 22 with us, whatever that means. Listen, while we've got you here, uh, do us a favor. Give us a follow on Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Plot Devices at Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Plot Devices in our RSS feed as well if you find us on there. And also follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. We got updates there. We share our reviews out. Go check us out there. Speaking of reviews, uh, Noah, you got a review. Where can people find you online and what do you got going on in your life? You can check me out at Twitter on 
on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. Uh, please follow, engage, message, do whatever you'd like and retweet and subscribe to our podcast. Um, I have a couple reviews in the works right now. I definitely want to review The Curse because of how um, attentive I was during that film and how impactful I left uh, that screening with. And then in the next week, we have a furry title that we're exploring. It's going to be Turning Red. It's definitely like, I'm looking at it with hard eyes. Um, and then Pam and Tommy, we're going to be talking Pam and Tommy next week. Um, I got stuck on the film. What's the title film? Batman. Oh my God, Batman. We are talking Batman next episode. What am I saying? I cannot wait to talk about it next episode. And perhaps he is a vampire, which I can or cannot deny having seen the Batman. And we'll be able to tell you all about it next time, next show. Uh, along with my review on ASU Odyssey, which you can find me and my work there. Uh, reviews for Red Tails, Uncharted, and The Sky is Everywhere should be up by the time you're listening to this. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Follow my band as well, Cablebox, at Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. We've got a gig coming up as you're listening to this at the Rebel Lounge in Phoenix, uh, Friday, March 4th with uh, Prince Mirth, Unembalmed, and a Kith and Kin. Tickets you can find at ctickets.us. That's ctickets.us. We'd love to see you guys out there. Uh, they do require a vaccine or um, negative COVID test, but please come out and support us. We'd love to have you there. And um, yeah, once again, Plot Devices Pod, Twitter and Instagram, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, follow us there. For myself, for Noah Guzman, this has been episode 22 of Plot Devices, and we will catch you guys next time. Woo-hoo.